Well, it's certainly good to be with you tonight. Can everybody hear me all right? We're good. Uh, like always, it is a pleasure for us to be here with you. We really uh, view Lakeside and think of y'all as our second home, a home away from home. And uh, just just glad to be with you. The hospitality and the kindness you've shown our family, not only this week, but years in the in the years past, have uh, been uh, outstanding. And we, we love you and we praise you for it. And I'm glad to participate in this uh, this week's VBS, especially this Wednesday night, excited about the things that we're going to talk about. We're on the Mount of Olives tonight, and I'm going to begin in Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which the Lord had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but were some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I invite you to come and stand on the Mount of Olives with me tonight. As we look at this text and look at a little bit of of Acts as well, Acts chapter 1. And listen to the words of Jesus and try to imagine Jesus leaving this earth, His feet rising off of the ground, ascending into the highest of heavens through the clouds. We can see Him no longer. We're on the Mount of Olives. This is the spot, the mountain anyway, where many years ago David stood. David had fled to the Mount of Olives. He fled because his son Absalom was creating a rebellion against him. David wept there and he prayed to God because David's wisest counselor, Ahithophel, had joined Absalom, his son. David thought his power and his authority was about to be taken away from him. He thought that his kingdom was about to be handed over to another, and he prayed, O Lord, make the counsel of Ahithophel as foolishness. And it's here in this spot where Jesus has gathered us together to pronounce that he has authority. It has not been taken away from him. He has a kingdom, and this kingdom will never be destroyed. This isn't the first time we've been on the Mount of Olives with Jesus. Jesus brought us here many times before. He would teach in the temple in Luke chapter 21, 37 through 38, in the daytime and then retreat to the Mount of Olives for us to sleep. He would travel back and forth from Jerusalem to other regions, always stopping at the Mount of Olives to pray. It's where Jesus taught us about the destruction of Jerusalem and the things to come in the near future. This is where Jesus looked over the city of Jerusalem, and He wept, and He prayed because of the hardness of their hearts. This is where He brought us after He taught us the Lord's Supper. And we sang a hymn. He went on a little further and He prayed three times. Sweat as blood dripped from His face. He was betrayed with a kiss and then arrested. That was 43 days earlier. Just a little over a month, but He's brought us back to this place. This is a prearranged meeting. It is the place that He has designated us to be. And we're all together to hear what He has to tell us. What does this mean for us? What does the ascension mean? As we watched Him go into the sky. Well, it means that Jesus is exactly who He claimed to be. It means that Jesus has the authority that He claims to have. This isn't the first time Jesus has told us about His authority. From the beginning of His ministry to the end of His ministry, He proclaimed His authority, not only in the words that He said, but in His actions. They came to Him 
to take him. But they said they could not, because he was not like the scribes and the Pharisees, for he taught with authority. Even in the sermon that he gave us on the mount, he said, you have heard that it was said, and you have heard that it was said this, but I say unto you, he spoke with great authority. Jesus turned the water into wine. He walked on water. He gave sight to the blind. He cast out the evil spirits. Even the winds and the waves obey His voice. In Matthew, the ninth chapter, and in verse 6, Jesus said, Your sins are forgiven to a man who had been lame, or was lame. The crowd said, Who can forgive sin but God alone? Jesus says, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or arise and walk? But so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, take up your pallet and walk. And he did. Jesus demonstrated his authority time after time after time. And he proved his authority with the miracles that he performed. Jesus had power over life and death. He stood at a tomb where his good friend had been laid. He had been there for four days. He said, roll the stone away. No, he stinketh, Lord. Let's not do that, they said. He said, roll it away. And he commanded Lazarus to come forth. Jesus demonstrated the power even over death, even over his own life, and his own death. He chose the right time to come into this world to be born. And he chose the time of his death and the manner in which he would die. Look with me in John chapter 10 and notice the authority of Jesus over his life. John John chapter 10 and in verse 17... He says, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be, the Son of God, God in the flesh, the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, the King of Israel, and He proved it with His ascension. It means that Jesus has fulfilled all the prophecies concerning Himself. Look with me in Acts, the second chapter. Acts, the second chapter, starting in verse 22, as Peter begins to preach... On the day of Pentecost, Acts 2 and verse 22, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined and the foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at the right hand, so I will not be shaken. Therefore, may my heart or therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh will also live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For you have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried in His tomb is with us today. And so, because he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn to him in an oath to seat one of his descendants on the throne. He looked ahead and he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did 
nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, verse 33, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he, that he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit here until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God hath made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter preached on the day of Pentecost that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Messiah, that he was the fulfillment of the things prophesied by David. Not only would he die by the predetermined plan of God, not only would he be raised up according to the plan of God, but that he would be exalted according to the plan of God. It's not David who he's talking about. He says, David's tomb is with us. You could go visit it. You could go in there and dig up his bones, but not Jesus. He has been raised from the dead, and he has ascended to the right hand of God, and he has been exalted. This is the prayer that Jesus prayed in John chapter 17. John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. Jesus spoke these things and lifted up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to whom you have given him, he may give eternal life, this eternal life, that he may also know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work you have given me to do. Notice verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had before the world was. Peter says Jesus has been glorified. He has been exalted. Think about what it must be like for Jesus. Think about what the ascension means for him. Jesus humbled himself and he came in the form of flesh. He left the glories and the riches of heaven. He came to this earth born in a stable, placed in a manger to a poor family to grow up in a rotten town called Nazareth to begin his ministry being mocked and ridiculed by the religious leaders, being told that he had power, yeah, but his power comes from the devil. Having multitudes follow you wherever you went, not because they were interested in the things that you said, not because they were interested in, in who you were and religious things and being right with God, but they followed you because you fed them. And they wanted to see signs and miracles. He humbled himself. He was betrayed by a friend with a kiss. He allowed people to arrest him in a garden, to carry him away, and he gave his back to the whip. He allowed the hands of godless men to nail him to a cross, to hang him up, to be humiliated, to suffer and die. Jesus humbled himself Peter says he has now been exalted to his rightful place. Think of the scene of the cross. As people came by and spat upon our Lord. And they mocked him and they ridiculed him. And they said to him, if you are the Son of God, come down and we'll believe you. And he yields up his spirit. And he hangs his head. And he dies with a twisted crown of thorns upon his head. He doesn't look like an exalted king, does he? Not a king that anybody would want to follow. He's helpless, or he seems to be helpless and hopeless, powerless. He is conquered, he seems to be defeated as an enemy king would be drugged into the city and mocked and then killed. But you know and I know, and our Lord Jesus knows, that he had victory in that moment. Although it didn't look like victory in appearance to the common people, and it may not have looked like it to us if we were there, 
it was victory for him. The book of Psalms, chapter 2. Psalms chapter 2, and in verse 1, it says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stands and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear the fetters apart and cast away the cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and will terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy hill. I will surely tell of the, of the decree of the Lord, he said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And of me, and I will ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, even the ends of the earth as your possessions. You will break them with a rod of iron, and you will shatter them like earthenware. Jesus' death upon the cross, God says, I laughed. Because Satan and all of those who stood against God and fought against God thought they were defeating Him. God says, nope. I've exalted my king. The king of Zion rules. And he will rule the nations now. From our standpoint, Jesus floated away and just disappeared into the sky. But from heaven's standpoint, they received him up as the king of glory. We don't have time, but you could go through the book of Revelations. You can look in Revelations chapter 5, chapter 12, chapter 15, and others, where Jesus is counted as the worthy one, the only one that is able to open the seal, the one who has given full authority and full dominion and power and glory forever, and the saints there, and the elders there, and the living creatures there, and all of them gather around and shout, Amen, 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 and they fall and worship the King. Think of what it's like for our Lord to ascend home. A crown of thorns he left with, but a crown of glory he received. Just notice several passages here, and I'm going to go through them quickly. Not much to say about them, but just just listen to the preaching of the New Testament and what was said of Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, Ephesians 1. Starting in verse 18, Paul is praying for the Ephesians there. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know the hope of his calling. What are the riches of his glory and his inheritance in the saints? What is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working and of the strength of his might which he brought about in Christ, whom he raised from the dead, and he seated at his right hand in the heavenly places. Notice verse 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under him, his feet, and he gave to him as head over the church, of all things to the church, which is the fullness of him who fills all in all. Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, and in verse 13. For He rescued us from the domain of darkness, and He transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him, that's speaking of Jesus, for by Him all things were created both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He will come to have first place in everything. Chapter 2 and in verse 9. For in Him the fullness of deity dwelled in bodily form. In verse 10. In Him we have been made complete, and He is head over all rule and all authority. One more, First Timothy. First Timothy chapter 6, and in verse 13, 
Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and to Jesus Christ who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's who we watched ascend into heaven. The one who has all might, all power, all authority, and all rule. He has been exalted to his proper place and he has received glory. Because Jesus ascended into heaven to receive a crown of a crown of glory, it means we too will receive a crown as well. Second Timothy two, four through four, seven and eight, Paul says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith in the future, therefore I know a crown of righteousness awaits me, not only for me, but all those who loved his appearing. James chapter one and in verse twelve, a crown of life is promised to all those who Love him. Jesus ascended. We too shall ascend. He received a crown and he's waiting to put a crown upon your head as well. Because Jesus ascended into heaven, it means that sin has been atoned for. It means that our sins have been paid for. It means that purification has been made and Jesus is our Faithful, forever, high priest. Go with me to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter... Oh, let's start in chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, notice what it says, who passed through... Where? The heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things and yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. He passed through the heavens. When did he do that? When he ascended. When he ascended into the highest of heavens. Hebrews 9 Hebrews 9 and verse 24. For Christ did not enter the holy place made with human hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as a high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once the in the consummation of the ages has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Chapter 10 and verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, that is Jesus, having offered the sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Here's the scene. Jesus has ascended into the highest of heavens. He he walks into the holy place of God, not passing through a curtain or some type of man-made veil, but he passed through the heavens, the Scripture says, and he enters in now to the most holy place with blood, not blood of a lamb, but his own blood. And he offers it there, and he lays it on the mercy seat of God. And it says our sins are have been taken away. Purification has been made in this comparison to the old way and the new way. The old priest stood daily sacrificing. The Scripture says Jesus sacrificed one time and he sat down. His blood paid it all. And He took it into the highest of heaven. And He made purifications for us. The ascension proves that Jesus will return. Look with me in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1. In verse 9, Jesus has commissioned us. And after He said these things, He was lifted up. And while we were looking 
on, a cloud received him out of our sight. And as we were gazing intently in the sky while he was going, behold, two men stood in in white clothing stood beside them. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who had been taken up into heaven will come in just the same way which you watched him go into heaven. It means he, he's going to come back. You ever think about that? Here, here's this, this time when Jesus ascends into heaven and the disciples are standing around and they watch him go away. But what he's really saying to them is, I'm coming back. Well, they're seeing him leave and they're saying, Wait, where, are, where is he going? We're going to be all alone. Now, this is the fulfillment of what he said. He's going to be with his father. He's going to be our high priest. He's making atonement for our sins. He's being anointed as king of kings and lord of lords. Jesus said, you'll know I'm coming back when I go. John chapter 14, don't let your hearts be troubled, he said. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place, I will come again and receive you. Had he never gone, how would we know he's coming back? How would we know we have a place prepared for us? It proves to us he will return just as he said he would. And on Sunday, two scriptures were used that I have here in my notes. I'll just mention them to you because they should be fresh in your mind. He's coming back. And he's coming back. And he'll give the command, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. And there'll be a great shout from the archangel. And the trumpet of God will blast. We won't miss it, as Brother Cain said. He went away, but he's coming back. And when he does, notice what Matthew 25 says. This was in our Bible class on Sunday morning. But Matthew 25 just want to emphasize what is said there in just uh, just a few passages verse 31 25 and verse 31 but the son but when the son of man comes in his glory with all the angels with him and he will sit on his glorious thrones and all throne and all the nations will be gathered before him he will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He's coming again. It means when he ascended into heaven, he had accomplished the saving work he came to do. Jesus says in the book of John, chapter 3, I didn't come to judge the world, but I came to save. He came bringing salvation, but he's coming again to receive the faithful home and to give them a crown. But he's coming in judgment, he says. And this we can be sure of because he ascended to the highest of heavens. Philippians 2, this passage was used Sunday morning as well. Philippians 2, and in verse 5, speaks how we should have the same attitude of Christ and be like him. Verse 6, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Notice verse 9, for this reason God highly exalted him. And he bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He has been exalted. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Every king of the earth that has ever saw power and world domination every time, everyone that has raised up an army to conquer and to overtake, those who have commanded genocide and ethnic cleansing and carried it out, those who have built fortresses and strongholds and castles and built weapons of mass destruction, those who have memorized our nuclear codes and think that they hold the power because they can push the red button, Jesus says they will be brought low before him. They have no power at all. He 
has all power, all authority in heaven and on earth. All will be made powerless before Him. And everyone will confess that He alone is King of kings. We'll be there. We won't miss that either. Our knees will be bent. And our tongues will confess. I heard a preacher say one time, You confess Him now, and you bow before Him now, because you will later. This really begs the question at this point. Who's really Lord of your life? Who really sits on the throne in your life? Is it our Lord Jesus? Because He won't sit there by force. I saw a cartoon in a church bulletin one time. had a picture of a little cartoon illustration of a preacher baptizing somebody. And a little caption above it says, All that goes into the water is committed to the Lord. And the man's holding his wallet up because he doesn't want it to get wet. You know, it's a little comical, but it's true. Either He's Lord of all of our life, or He's not my Lord at all. And that's what Jesus wants from us. Is He my Lord? Is He my King? Do I take commands from Him? Do I submit to Him in all things? Well, I go to church on Sunday. That's not what I'm asking. I take the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. That's not what I'm asking. Is He Lord in your home? In the way that we treat our family members, our spouses, and our children? Is He our Lord at the workplace? When we're frustrated and we're tired and we're ready to go home and people are getting under our skin and on our nerves? Is He my Lord when I'm by myself? When no one is around me? When I'm on vacation and no other Christians know that I'm here, am I still serving the Lord? And am I submitting to Him? He is the exalted King. He is the High Priest. He is both judge of the living and the dead. That's what the ascension means. The ascension means we have much work to do. In Matthew 28 and verse 19, just kind of grasp this. Jesus' last words before He leaves this earth to us, His disciples, is go. Go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them all that I have commanded you, of anything He could say at that moment, of all the important information we need to know, of all the encouragement perhaps we want, and all the comfort we want from our Lord, He chooses to say, go. That's impressive to me. That means that we have a great work to accomplish. Do you notice how many passages we read where it says Jesus sat down? He sat down at the right hand of God. And He sat down at the right hand of God. And He sat down at the right hand of God. He's accomplished the work God has given Him to do. And He says to His disciples, Your work's only begun. Your work's only begun. I'm coming to gather the nations. I'm coming to gather the world before me. To judge them in righteousness, Jesus is saying. Go and make them my disciples. He doesn't rejoice in the death of the ungodly. He desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. He's coming in judgment. And He's telling us, go 
and save the rest. And they did. These 11 men, later they'll appoint uh, Matthias. The Apostle Paul will join them later as an apostle. They'll take the gospel message, they'll take the words that Jesus spoke into every nation on the earth. And they'll preach and they'll teach. And those people that they teach and they preach, those people will teach and they will preach. The job of a disciple is to make more disciples. Those are his last words on this earth. You're up to bat, he says. I'm sitting down and I'm watching and I'm with you. Go conquer the world because I'm the king of kings. Not by force. Not with physical might. Not with physical weapons. But with this message. Touching the hearts and stirring the minds and winning the souls for me. Go into all the world and preach the message. What time do we leave here? Eight o'clock? All right, we got just a few minutes. Good. All right, I'm tired of talking. Josh said you had to fill 55 minutes, and I said, well, I don't think I've ever preached over 30, but I'll try. <laughs> and so I combined about this is about five of my sermons put together. If I had to preach it again, but I'd like for you to participate with me, if you would. And I'd like to uh, show you some things on this slide that have uh, been shown to me. Uh, I didn't come up with them. I can't take credit for all of this. But uh, they certainly have helped me and uh, given me some things to think about. Before we get started, we are talking about evangelism right now. Who here is 100% satisfied with their own efforts in teaching the lost? Okay, good. I was going to let you be dismissed, but okay. Because we're all in the same boat. But it is our mission, isn't it? And that's what we should be about. Saving the lost. Okay. Here's a survey. It says, The Institute of American Church Growth asked over 10,000 churchgoers this question. What is responsible for you coming to Christ and coming to this church? Okay, and this is just overall, this isn't Church of Christ information here. This is just churchgoers. What is responsible for you coming to Christ? And why are you here at this particular church? 2% said, I had a special need. Uh, and so, in other words, they, perhaps they were hungry, and somebody said, offered them, you know, food, and said, "I'll feed you." I have a special need. I'm in need of something, and so I'm looking for someone to help me. Two percent of those people came to Christ and uh, began attending the church. Three percent. Think about that. Three percent of all churchgoers, or these ten thousand that were. That were asked. Only 3% of them just happened to walk into a building one day and be taught and stay. I like the preacher. That one might be a little higher here than 6%. Maybe like 7%. But I like the preacher. I met him. I met him out in the community and he invited me and, uh, and, and began talking with me and and now I'm a Christian and I attend church regularly. I visited. Okay, I was uh, just passing through. I liked the Bible class they were offering. I attended a special meeting. Or I put gospel meeting here. Some type of special service they were having. And so I came. Half a percent. This thing is slow. 
Do I need to point it up here? I like the programs, 3%. 79% of all of these people said that they were personally taught and invited by a friend or relative. That's what, God, that's what Jesus told us to do. And notice how well it works. And what I'm getting at is that's our plan. To go and talk to people. To go as individuals and teach people. Let's look at some reasons perhaps why we don't do this as often or as much as we should. Here's just some things I thought of and you you could probably think of some more. We might say, well, it's really not my talent. What do y'all think about that? Is that a justifiable reason? Is it true that some people are better at talking to people? Is it true that some people are are better at uh, perhaps explaining the Scriptures to somebody? Well, absolutely. But to say it's just not my talent, I just really have a problem with that because if we want to do something and we try it and we're not very good at it, but we really want to do it, what do we normally do? We try it again, don't we? We practice it. We practice it until we perfect it, don't we? We get with somebody who's good at it and we ask them to help us. Evangelism is the same way. If we really want to do it, we can't say, well, it's just not my talent. Some might say, well, it's not my job. That's the preacher's job. I know that doesn't exist here. I've heard Christians say that before. You probably have too. Well, it's just not my job. Jesus said to his disciples, yes, he spoke to his apostles there, but he said, go and you... You teach them, you baptize them, and you teach them everything that I've commanded you. Well, part of that command is to go and make disciples. Every disciple is to make disciples. Alright? Just not concerned for the loss. That's perhaps is a big reason. Fear. What are some things we may be afeard of? It's okay, in Florida we say a feared, but I know y'all just say fear. What are some things where we may have fear of in talking with folks about the Lord? Being rejected? Anybody else ever lose? Yeah, a, a friendship may change, so uh, that probably goes into the rejection part as well, doesn't it? Fear of being rejected, a fear of Perhaps losing someone who we really love and care about. Remember what what God told Samuel? They haven't rejected you. They're rejecting me. It's not me. We're just messengers. God's word will never come back void. What about the friendship, though? I really that's a big one, and and it plays a part not just our friends but our family members because we don't want that in between us, and we don't want to lose someone we love. But let me just ask it this way. Would it be better if we taught them the gospel and were able to teach them and they became a Christian and now your friendship is stronger because your brothers now, your sisters, they're not just a friend. Now they're your sister. Now they're your brother. Who here thinks that would be worth the risk? It is. It really is, isn't it? Their soul will be saved and they'll be your brother now. They'll be your sister. I'm just too busy. Are we busy today? Yeah. We're all busy. You think the Lord will accept that on Judgment Day when He asks us about our evangelistic efforts? I would have, Lord. But you know, I had soccer. Kids had soccer and baseball, and I, I could I worked some overtime. It takes time to evangelize. It takes time to talk to people. No excuse. What about a negative attitude? Nobody wants to be saved anymore. 
Nobody will listen. It's not, not like the old days when you could have a gospel meeting and have, you know, have it every night of the week and you'd have people from all over the community just come. Oh no, it's not like that anymore. Does that mean that there's not souls to be saved? Does that mean that there's not people hungering and thirsting for truth? No. There are. And it's our job to take the message to them. Oh man, too fast. Okay, way too fast. I'm not going to finish all this, but... Alright. There's a slide that I stole from somebody. But it really made an impact on me when I when I began thinking about you know, my own evangelistic efforts. It says, everyone who wants to save a soul will. If you want it bad. Isn't that what we tell our kids? If you want to bad enough, you go after it. You do it. You set your mind to it. And you do it. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, can't we? And in the way of evangelism, we can as well. Everyone who wants to save a soul will. Everyone else will just make an excuse. And let that sink in. I'm going to skip this one for time's sake. Uh, but we have everything we need. I'm not skipping it, but I'm going to quickly say it. We have everything we need. And the one thing that we forget to put on is our boots in preparation for the gospel of peace. We can put all that armor on, but if we don't have our boots on, we're not going anywhere. I always put my boots on before I leave. My physical boots. Got to have them. We need our spiritual boots as well. So, all right, somebody look at this. Let's talk about this for a minute. We've got a church building on this side and we've got our Lord on the cross on the other side. What is it that we're supposed to be teaching the lost? Which one? I can't hear. Right side. And what I'm getting at is our philosophy has changed from what Jesus told us to do. He said go into the world and preach. And we say, if we could just get them in the church, they'll be saved. The church doesn't save anybody. Only Jesus saves. And He adds us to His church. Well, man, my buddy down at work, he's such a good guy. If I could just get him in the right church. Never happened. And it wouldn't do any good. It's not the church that saves it's Christ. And they went out and they preached Jesus. The, the Ethiopian eunuch preached Jesus to them. On the day of Pentecost, Pentecost, Peter preached Jesus. I'm not saying we don't talk about the church. I'm not talking, you know, we, we preach on the unity of the church and we talk about those things and instrumental music, but teaching someone about how we should only sing a, a cappella in our worship doesn't save them. And it's not the message that draws people. Those things must be taught. Teach all that I have commanded you. But it doesn't make a disciple. Someone taking the Lord's Supper on the first day of every single week instead of once a quarter doesn't make them a disciple. Jesus on the cross, them submitting to the King of Kings who has authority, being willing to obey Him and bow their knees to Him makes them their disciple. That's the message we need to take to the world. Church doesn't save. Jesus Christ does. And so, everything we do to try to get people here, to me, is kind of backwards. If we could just get them here. We gather for worship. The saved gather for worship, and then we scatter taking the Word. That's what happens. Only like 1% and 3% of people ever just walk into a church building and hear the truth and get saved. We've got to take the message out there is what I'm getting at. Alright. Which one of those would make a better pulpit for someone to learn about Jesus? I'm not diminishing what we do on Sunday morning. I'm not... Diminishing what Josh has been doing, a fine job doing. This is vitally important to the law, to the saved. But the lost aren't here with us 
Or we might occasionally get a lost wander in or come if they're invited. What I'm getting at is what's more effective is sitting down eyeball to eyeball with somebody and talking to them about their soul and teaching them that Jesus is the King and that He died because He put on the form of a bondservant and He died for you and He died for me. That's what we need to be about. Alright. Every train needs to be pushed by something. And this old locomotive, you know, can come barreling down the tracks, but what makes it go is all that coal that's being heaped in that hot fire. Motivation. We need to have a burning desire is what I'm getting at. Not only to please our Lord, but for our friends and neighbors who don't know Him. We need to love them enough to share with them the gospel so that they can be saved. All right, we got just a few seconds. Let me, let me do this real quick. If my car broke down tonight and we need to get home tomorrow, how many of you here would drive us to Florida because I, have, I got $5,000 I'll give you? It's in my pocket. When we get to Florida, I'll give you the $5,000. Any volunteers? Randy says, right here. Okay, I've got $2,000 in my pocket, and I will give it to you. All you got to do is take us home tomorrow. Take us to Florida. Take us home, and I'll give it to you. Who here would do it for $2,000? Nobody? I don't know. Yeah, okay. okay. For how much? You do it for five? Five, two? Yeah, you like the first one better. But here, how many of you would take off work if I get said I'll give you $5,000? You call in sick, take off work, drive me to Florida. Anybody do it? You're not sick. Okay, we can't lie. No, I'm just kidding. Here's my point. You'll go, or we will go, I would go, take somebody home for $5,000 because it, that five grand motivates me. What motivates us is what I'm getting at to go share the gospel. There's not $5,000 in it. What is it that we truly love? What motivates us in this life? Will you take the time out of your week and out of your busy schedule and out of your day to take somebody home to heaven with you? Love is the perfect motivator. It is the greatest motivator. It casts out all fears. That's what we need to be doing. Loving the loss. The point is we can teach everybody. Every soul needs saving. Jesus went to the vilest of sinners and proclaimed His message. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your uh, willingness to participate with me in these things.